Ezra 10, beginning in verse 9, I think is where we left off. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square because the house of God, before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for a day or, two, or for two for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jazeah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of fathers, houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now, there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Masiah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zebediah. Of the sons of Harim, Maseah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah. Of the sons of Pashur, Elioni, Maseah, Ishmael, Nathanael, Josabad, and Delasa. Of the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Kaliah, that is Kalita, Pethiah, Judah, and Eliezer, of the singers Eliashib, of the gatekeepers Shalom, Telem, and Uri, and of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Mijamin, Eliezer, Hashabiah, and Benaiah, of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, of the sons of Zatu, Elioni, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Aziza. Of the sons of Bebai were Jehohanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athlai. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Maluk, Adiah, Batjashub, Sheel, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pehath, Moab, Adna, Kilal, Beniah, Maseah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Binui, and Manasseh. Of the sons of Harim, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah, of the sons of Hashem, Mataniah, Matata, Zabad, Eliphelet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei, of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Uel, Beniah, Bediah, Kaluhi, Beniah, Meramoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matane, Jasu, of the sons of Binui, Shimei, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adiah, Magnadabai, Shashai, Sharai, Azarel, Shalamiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph, of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Mattathiah, 
Zabad, Zabina, Jedi, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many of you remember the first time you ever saw your name in print? It's kind of cool, right? Especially when you're a kid, uh, to see your name in a program or something. There's something about it. Even as an adult, like the first time you ever try Googling yourself and, you know, on page three of the Google results, one of the results is, in, you know, is actually about you and, you know, you, you almost feel special for some reason, like you really arrived. When I was a kid, um, we had a local paper. I'm not going to call it a newspaper because that would be giving it too much credit. Uh, it was a weekly, the only times, and it was 90% advertisements. And... Um, but if you graduated from high school, you better believe you expected your mom to buy a space in the paper so that you could see your name in print. That is the closest thing you were going to get to being famous in Alney. That was it. And, you know, it's the same thing if you were to appear on television or anything like that. If you've ever seen like a glimpse of yourself on the news, some people... Even during that incident, there was at one point I could see in the background for about a third of a second a guy in a red coat, and I'm like, look, it's me. (laughs) Well, we've reached now the end of Ezra, and, you know, I just read that whole section and a bunch of names. I'm not going to read them again. But I think it was important for us to hear them once, because this is God's word, and he saw fit to record these names. And on one level, you know, if it was cool to be recognized in the Alney Times for graduating high school, how much more cool would it be to show up in the Bible, you would think? Uh, But this is not the kind of publicity you're looking for. These men's names are written down so that everyone knows that they screwed up. God doesn't want us to forget. And so the names are recorded for all posterity. And what had these men done wrong? They had married foreign, unbelieving women, and they had allowed their sons to do the same. And in that time, when marriages were much more likely to be arranged, or at least supervised, they didn't merely allow their sons to marry these foreign women, they had probably arranged it. They had looked at the situation and decided these marriages would be advantageous in some way, so this was a very deliberate, thoughtful, premeditated, sinful act. And we see by this list that all sorts of families were guilty in this matter. It touches every group, including the religious and political elite. Commoners, Levites, even the choir members, the gatekeepers. No one group is innocent in this matter. Now, I have said before that this entire issue sounds very strange to our ears. The question of marrying foreign women. I mean... A little bit. Like, so, so my mother is Swedish, and my father is, was Italian from South Philadelphia, and he had one relative. They called her Nanny. I don't think it was his great-grandmother. I don't know what the situation was. She only spoke Italian. And she said, don't you marry that girl, because her father was a cop and she wasn't Italian. To show you what kind of standards they have among the Italians in South Philadelphia. So it is strange to our ears, like that sounds ludicrous, that was the 70s, right? But we live in an age and in a culture now where where marriage has been so diluted of any meaning. 
It's not an exclusive commitment, really, and it's certainly not considered something that's forever. And because our culture has declared that love is love, if there could be a more meaningless tautology in the world, you can therefore marry anyone or anything for any amount of time. Marriage only means what the culture says it means as of today. It might be different tomorrow. But we know better because we know that marriage was God's idea. Uh, he created marriage in the very beginning so that man would not be lonely and that he would have a helper and that they would have children and be happy together like the old turtles song says. Marriage was created, like all things, for the glory of God. Now, our culture thinks that marriage is for the glory of man. Uh, there's a reason why we put so much emphasis on the party associated with the wedding these days. Uh, I have known many couples who have lived together, sometimes for years, and they'll say, oh, we'd like to get married. We just can't afford it yet. <laughs> Huh? You're already together. How expensive is the license? 50 bucks? I'll loan it to you. I'll take care of it. I'll do the service for nothing. But if the wedding is man-centered, then it needs a big party. Because the big party impresses everyone. The party becomes the point. And my glory increases the more awesome is the party that I threw. So yes, our culture has made marriage into something Man-centered, not God-centered. But what we realize now is that this has been happening on some level from the very, very beginning, and it's not new. And you cannot actually remake marriage in your own image. The, the, the problem with this way of thinking is that marriage, because it's God's idea, and because it's a creation mandate, it always works to do what God intended it to do, which is to bind things together. Marriage creates attachments. You can't remake marriage in your own image because God made it and it only works a certain way. Marriage binds things together. And that can be good and bad. And sex, because it is so central to marriage, does the same thing, but on steroids. It's the ultimate physical expression of unity with another person. God designed it to be really good at binding a man and a woman together. And the unity becomes more than merely physical. It becomes an emotional and a spiritual thing. You cannot have sex and not have it bind you in some deeper way with that person. Because you're human. And God gave you a body. And that's how it works. There's no such thing as casual, meaningless sex, contra the culture. You can't have sex with no strings attached. God gave it strings. That's how it works. And because of that, intermarriage, binding yourself together with unbelievers, essentially sleeping with the enemy, if you want to word it that way, will always, always draw your heart away from God. Because God designed sex and marriage to work that way. It draws you away because the design is still working. You are ironically using his good gift to replace him. You're pulling yourself apart, and it is toxic to your relationship with Christ. And we could say that this extends to many other things. We attach ourselves to lots of things beyond in marriage. 
Marriage is just sort of the strongest example of these things. And scripture talks about that all over the place. Ezra, when he was praying in chapter 9, he cited multiple passages in that prayer from the Old Testament that God's people were not to intermarry with the peoples of the land. He, he mentions a passage in Deuteronomy 23 that goes even further than that. He says the command was to not even seek their peace and prosperity, let alone marry them. Sounds almost spiteful, doesn't it? But the point is that mixing with the world in an intimate way is no good, no bueno. Mm -hmm. And thus, marriage is clearly a bad idea with them. And lest we say that this is just the Old Testament, Paul fleshes this out further at some considerable length in his Corinthian letters. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! And never is actually stronger. It's the closest Paul comes to swearing in Greek. It's much more like God forbid. You just don't mix with the world in that way. Later in that same passage, he gives this rationale. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In his second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 6 of that book, Paul says this. He says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So it doesn't matter where you look in scripture, the word is the same. You, as God's child, are the temple of the Holy Spirit and have no business shacking up with the world. That is true in a general sense. It is certainly true of your sex life and your marriage. Who you marry is not primarily your business. It is not primarily your parents' business. It is God's business. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are no longer free to follow your heart. He has thoughts on who you should be with, and that should matter to you. But we're seeing, again, that this problem is not new to our culture. God's people have always been enticed by this very temptation. Love, sex, marriage have always been attractive. They're supposed to be. It's a strong drug, and it should be a healthy drug. But the enemy loves to see us abuse it, doesn't he? He loves to see Christians conflicted in their loyalty between the women and even children that they love and the Christ who died for them. There's no pain-free choice in the scenario. It's a, therefore, it's a win-win for the enemy. And so it's the case in Jerusalem and Judea in the days of Ezra. These men have created an impossible situation. They treated marriage as if it was theirs to do with as they pleased. They took a man-centered approach to it. And now they're stuck. And this is why Ezra mourns and weeps. He's fasting in despair, right? Because how do you talk people out of a folly they've already committed? And yet, surprisingly, that's just what happens. We saw last week, Ezra made many of the Jews take an oath in verse 5. They promised in this moment of despair to get rid of these foreign wives and the kids. 
not to bump them off, but to send them away and wash their hands of them, uh, presumably back to their father's houses. And that's a pretty drastic promise to make. I would say this is not an oath to be taken lightly. You're essentially committing to break off these marriages, to separate what was brought together, which sounds like making one promise that you'll break another promise that you made earlier. And I have to admit that that doesn't seem to make much sense. Uh, we talked recently in Sunday school, we were talking about oaths and vows and uh, about how keeping your vows is one of the ways to honor God's name according to the third commandment. Uh, and the Westminster Confession has a very useful chapter on lawful oaths and vows and you're not supposed to make promises lightly. You're not supposed to make rash vows. You can't make promises that obligate you to sin. You can't make promises you have no power to fulfill. So I wonder, when I look at that oath that they take in verse 5 here in Ezra 10, is that legitimate? How can you undo these marriages and leave these kids essentially as orphans, fatherless? Like, was this a bad promise to make? Anyone here who has children has probably made a promise that they regretted making. Kids have a way of squeezing those kinds of promises out of us. Uh, they are relentless in their requests, and eventually we say, sure, whatever. And we don't always mean that. We're usually just trying to buy five minutes of quiet. So more experienced parents try to keep their promises very vague and uncertain, something that you can weasel out of later. <laughs> I saw a meme recently, and it might eventually make the ladies' room wall. Uh, it said, no one lies more than a mom who says, we'll see, because we ain't about to see nothing. <laughs> but we know that we really should keep our promises, right? It's not good to make cheap promises, promises you don't intend to keep as Cogsworth describes it in Beauty and the Beast. Another great Disney theologian, Mary Poppins, refers to such promises as pie crust promises, easily made and easily broken. In fairness, I don't personally think of pie crusts as easy, but I digress. The point is, promises are not supposed to be taken lightly. The problem is that these marriages imply that you already made a promise to these women. And that was a sinful decision, but presumably... Aren't you supposed to keep those promises? And now they're promising before God to go back on the earlier promise. So we have conflicting promises in essence. How does that work? And can sin really be undone like that? Like hitting the back button on your web browser. Or rewinding a tape if you're old enough to remember tapes. And it's clearly not that simple to erase the sin, because even after they do this thing, what happens? Their names still get recorded. <laughs> so it almost seems like the cure might be worse than the disease. And honestly, when I read this chapter, like I don't really like it. And I don't think God likes it either, in a sense. In verse 9, all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. All the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. I wrestled with this a bit. The rain gets mentioned a couple of times here. 
I think God has a good sense for the dramatic in this scene. I think he'd make a great movie director. Because as the whole nation of the exiles assembles, just to set the tone, I think, he sends a pelting rain. And it doesn't rain that much in Israel. It's a pretty arid place, but when the nation gathers to face this situation, it pours. Georgia said it's almost as if God himself is weeping over how painful is this thing that's going on. And then on top of the letter comes this terrible verdict, ultimately, in verse 10 and following. Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you've broken faith and married foreign women, so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. Is this really the best way to handle this thing? I think we have to wrestle with this question because the same God who calls his people to be separate also says that he hates divorce. And the more you read of scripture, you realize like he despises that. I want you to consider just a handful of passages. Malachi 2.16, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says, the Lord God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Many translations of that same verse actually say it as, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. But no matter how you translate it, it's not particularly ambiguous. Jesus in Matthew 5 says this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. Later in Matthew 19, we read this. Some Pharisees come and test him. They say, is it okay to... uh, to, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. But therefore God is joined, let no man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Likewise, Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, goes to great lengths to discourage divorce. He says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So, beloved, how in the world shall we reconcile all of that with what's happening in Ezra 10? I find this story so distressing because we are literally, as Christians, called to do the very opposite. And as a pastor, I would never recommend this thing. It doesn't require a great Bible scholar to interpret the passages I just read. So why in Ezra did they commit to sending these women away? And I think we need to bear a couple of principles of scripture reading in mind. And this is good for a lot of passages. 
One thing you have to remember is that Revelation is progressive, not as in left-wing progressive. I mean that it unfolds over time. In other words, it is not entirely fair to hang Paul's letters over Ezra. It's quite possible that this principle only applies that we follow in the age of the spirit and the age of the church. And it's also worth remembering that not everything in scripture is a recommendation. Some have said there's a difference here between description and prescription, right? In other words, not everything you read in scripture is a command to go and do likewise. You know, just because the scripture talks about polygamy, for instance, that does not imply endorsement. Only biblical illiterates like the Mormons could make that argument. Because every Bible story that talks about polygamy makes it sound absolutely miserable. Or just because Locke got drunk and impregnated his daughters, like that's not an endorsement. It's insane to read every Bible story that way. I, I always loved like when unbelievers I knew in my high school days would point out like horrible things people did in the Bible as though this like proved something. And I'm like, I am shocked. I am shocked, sir, to find that sin is recorded in the scriptures. I, I just cannot believe it. So it's possible that Ezra 10 is purely descriptive and not prescriptive. I've seen some commentators mention that the language used in Ezra 9 and 10 for both marriage and divorce are not the usual typical words you find in the Old Testament, uh, meaning perhaps that the author doesn't really see the marriages as legitimate anyway and thinks of these as more like annulments, doesn't really think of this as divorce in the same kind of way. I'm not sure that really changes anything. Uh, because they've had kids with these women, so it, you know, the union is real enough, the sin is real enough, and the remedy is drastic enough. I'm not sure how much difference that makes. Uh, but I think there might be something in all of those answers. And look, this is an unprecedented move, and it was not universally approved. Verse 15 tells us there was, in fact, a minority report. Some guys didn't like this, which means that even at the time, not everyone was convinced that this was the right way. But I don't get the impression that this was necessarily frowned on by God either. It's a terrible scene, and I think it breaks God's heart, but I don't think that he's disapproving necessarily. And I think what we have here is what theologian Meredith Klein would have called a, a temporary suspension of common grace. I don't necessarily recommend reading a lot of Klein. He's very difficult to read. I just remember this being mentioned in a seminary class, and it, became, it was helpful enough that I've held on to it. The idea of common grace is the idea that, the, it's like that verse says, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, uh, and that simply being alive and enjoying anything, that's a gift from God, uh, whether you know him or not and whether you acknowledge him or not. Like even wicked people who reject God still enjoy common grace. They still enjoy the good things he provides, including marriage. And when even unbelievers do good things, they sometimes will enjoy temporal blessings for that in this life, even though they don't acknowledge the source. And, and marriage is like that. It's part of the creation mandate. Like every society from the dawn of time has practiced marriage. And why? Because in spite of all its flaws and abuses, it works. And it's evidence of God's common grace and design. Even unbelievers can have a relatively good marriage. And our God is patient. And he allows unbelievers to enjoy the good things that he's given in this time. 
But Klein argued that when we see episodes like this in the Old Testament, uh, where God's justice seems to overrule his mercy all of a sudden, uh, this is God providing just a glimpse of what the world would look like without common grace. Or if you like, it provides just a glimpse of what the final judgment is going to look like. Because there will be a separation on that day, and it's going to be a lot uglier than this. Consider this. Even in this scene, there is mercy. These foreign women and children, they're not exiled or executed, and nor are the unfaithful Jews put to death for their crime. In fact, I think what happens here is actually a, a proper divorce in the sense that they wanted to do right by these women financially and practically. Like, what did they say again in verses 12 to 14? They said, it is so, we must do as you've said, but, but the people are many. And it's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wise come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So, so they cry out to Ezra here and basically ask, can we do this in an orderly way out of the rain? And, and they say, like, you know, this can't be done in one to two business days. Like, but that only makes sense if you're not trying to just leave these women completely high and dry because it doesn't really take more than one or two days to just kick people to the curb. If the solution was that, to just kick them out and slam the door, that doesn't take that much time. But they request to get the elders and to get judges involved, and I think they're asking for time probably to make proper alimony arrangements and proper living arrangements for them to travel back home, return the dowry so she's not empty-handed. Like, I think this is a sliver of mercy in a dark time. But the situation is still an ugly one, and it, it, it turns the stomach to think of these families that are going to be torn apart. But I think that's the point. Because this is a picture of the judgment. This is a temporary pause on common grace. It's just a fancy way of saying this is what judgment day will look like. If you marry an unbeliever, if you make attachments like that, if you raise unbelieving children, this is what you're setting yourself up for. Not a temporary separation where like, they move back to New Jersey with their parents. This is a permanent, unbridgeable separation. This is the gulf between heaven and hell. And when you consider that reality, why on earth would you commit yourself in marriage to an unbeliever? This scene is supposed to make you sick, and it should demonstrate to you just how ridiculous it is to sin in this way. I don't think the point is to go and do likewise. The point is to show in bright neon lights how silly it is to bind yourself to what is perishing. And we know that Christians do this intentionally. The missionary dating thing, we've talked about that before, but it's like Paul says also in 1 Corinthians 7, how do you know wife whether you'll save your husband or how do you know husband whether you'll save your wife? Like how much more true is that of when you're in the dating situation? Jesus did say, what God has, manned, let, has joined, let no man separate. But what Ezra is showing is that what man alone has joined without reference to God, God will one day separate it. Because light has no fellowship with darkness. This is real and it's not a joke. Your life decisions today have eternal consequences. The story is depicting in sharp relief the silliness of making your life decisions without an eternal perspective. 
making decisions as if you are your own master. Now, that's a heavy business. And some of you may still be unhappy about this part of the story, and I get it. I don't think you're supposed to like it. And again, I don't think it's a model for us to follow, but I think it should make us think twice about what we get attached to. And some of you might be feeling convicted. You know, maybe we have some young folks here, maybe listening online, who are still on the dating scene and who have perhaps invested in these very kinds of relationships. You might right now be in a relationship with an unbeliever. And, you know, in that case, the application is pretty obvious, isn't it, that you need to get out of that relationship. Why keep investing in something that will tear you further from Jesus? Some may already be married to an unbeliever, and maybe your kids have followed your spouse in unbelief. In that case, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, you should heed what Paul's words are. Stay with your spouse if they're willing. But perhaps you can take from the gloom and the rain that God does see your situation, and he's not without compassion or mercy. It breaks his heart. He knows this is hard. But many of us are not in that situation, and I don't want to let you all off the hook. Because I think the fact is, every one of us has been guilty of investing in, committing heavily to, tethering ourselves to things and to relationships and to hobbies and habits that draw us away from Christ and that will not last, that will be destroyed in the end and that you will be separated from. I don't care what it is. Whatever idols you're living for will not survive the judgment. And I want you to think about it this way, that if God is willing to split marriages, which he hates to do, what are the odds that your idols are going to get a pass in this situation? Your job or your hobby, your reputation, your money, your political causes... If these are your identity, you're going to be in for a rude awakening because you can't take any of it with you. And this is why Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven. That's really what we're talking about here. That's what Ezra 10 is saying. Stop investing and pouring yourself into things that won't last. And I think in that sense, we all have a lot to think about here. A story like this should make anyone think. But beloved, there's always good news, isn't there? Because the gospel has a way of taking a story like this, and when you look at it through the full lens of the rest of Scripture, it kind of turns everything upside down. Because the law does not have the final word on this matter. It's kind of funny when you think about it. Uh, God spends so much of the Old Testament warning his people against foreign women. Don't go near them, stay away from them, don't marry them, etc. But then you get to the New Testament, and he calls his church the bride. Now tell me something. When you look at something like the book of Acts, think of Acts 2. What does the church look like? It looks like all the nations, all tongues. It looks foreign. If Jesus is the bridegroom, what could be more foreign than us? Not too many of you are Jewish. We are sinful, rebellious, and had been unbelieving Gentiles. 
And the point is that when you read this story, if you're trying to see your role in the story, what's your part here, if you're trying to relate to anybody, you're not Ezra, you're not the leaders, you're not the Jews. You should relate most to the foreign wives because we are the foreign bride. And we didn't choose Jesus, he chose us. The church was not chosen because of her faithfulness, but his. And it's an arranged marriage. His father's in on it. In the Old Testament, these unbelieving pagan women corrupted God's people, but Jesus chooses us, and he's not corrupted by interacting with us. Our uncleanness does not make him unclean. He makes us holy instead. He converts us and changes us. He sends his spirit into us, and we become his temple. And I almost half wonder whether that wasn't the story for at least some of these women in Ezra 10, because of, according to verses 16 and 17, it takes them three months to settle this matter. It's not a rush job. And we know that there's no prohibition in the Old Testament against becoming a Jew. We, saw the, we know the story of Ruth and Rahab and many others. And they had three months to consider whether they wanted to serve the Lord or leave and go back to dad's house. And that was more than enough time for some of these women to decide to commit themselves to the Lord and stay with their husbands if they wanted to. We don't know if they did, but it's possible. Verse 17 says that they came to an end of all the men who had married foreign women. It doesn't say that they came to an end of the women. So we just don't know. But they're not beyond hope, even here in Ezra 10. And likewise, even these men who sinned and are recorded here in disgrace, just because their names are recorded in Ezra 10 doesn't mean that they're not also recorded in the book of life. This is not the final word. So be encouraged, beloved. This book may seem to end on a depressing note, but even here there is mercy. God doesn't destroy anyone. He allows time for repentance, and ultimately he's in the process of restoring his people. And we also know the rest of the story because, again, we are the foreign bride. We are foreigners, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the only blood that matters is not what runs in your veins. It's what he shed on Calvary for us. That's the gospel. The lesson of Ezra 10 is not to go fix your sin or try to undo your mistakes. The lesson is to praise God for his mercy and to rest in Christ and to rejoice in the rest of the story because he redeems foreign brides. Marriage binds together. It just does. But you are the bride of Christ. And because you're in Christ, Ezra 10 will not be your story. Because if you trust Christ, you will never be sent away. Never, never, never. God hates putting away, and if you are in Christ, he won't. Not in this life, not at the judgment. And that is good news, amen? So let's pray. Gracious God and Father, what a hard story. What a horrifying scene. Lord, it breaks our hearts. I believe it breaks yours as well. But Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that the ultimate example of the foreign bride has been redeemed and brought near. That in Christ you will not send us away. Lord, we thank you for the book, this book of Ezra, Lord. We thank you for the lessons that it has taught us. We pray that you would help us to internalize them. Lord, that you would restore your people Give us new energy. 
Revive us, Lord. Revive your church. Make us faithful. And Lord, we thank you that even when we mess up and we're not faithful, that the one thing that is going to really count in the end is not our faithfulness, but Christ's. Help us to rest in that, Lord. Be with us this week, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings